listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. So last week, we looked into the... uh the armor of God prepared by God. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I, I actually borrowed that from, uh, from somewhere this morning and uh, I had a key, so I thought, well, it'd be all right if I borrowed that for a minute. So we started looking at the armor of God last week because in the final little segment of the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church there in Ephesus, the final little section had to do with the fact that we are facing an enemy. An enemy that is more powerful than we are, an enemy that is well organized and ready, willing, and able to wreck our life at any turn, at any cost. And that's his desire. That's his, his uh, lot for us as far as followers of Jesus. That's about the best he can do for us is to knock us off our path, destroy our reputation, ruin our testimony, get us discouraged, and keep our eyes off of Christ. But he will do that relentlessly, and he's way more powerful than we are. And so God has said, though, even though he's more powerful than you are, he is nowhere near as powerful as I am. And because I have provided all of the redeemed with every spiritual blessing that they need, everything that is required for my children to do what I've called them to do and to be, I've got spiritual armor for you to robe yourself in so that you may not take the offensive against the enemy, not charge hell with a water pistol, as some have said, but, but rather to stand and give no ground. I think about King Leonidas was the warrior king of the city of Sparta, the city-state of Sparta, and how that he led, I, I know probably you're thinking, yeah, he led 300 Spartans against the entire Persian army. Well, actually, it was about 7,000, of which 300 were uh, pure Spartan. But he did, at the, at the pass of, I believe it was Thermopylae, that he held off the Persian army for several days. And it cost the life of every one of them, but he held the ground. He did not let them pass through the, uh, the, the, the pass there in Thermopylae to get to the rest of the Greek army until they had had time to reassemble and gather themselves and be prepared. So when you think about Leonidas and his 300, you're not thinking about an, an army charging another, but rather one standing uh, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, knowing that when this one falls and that one falls, we've got another few stepping up, gouging as the soldiers are trying to get through. Through the past. That's kind of the idea that we have when God says, I've given you this armor so that you can stand, not charge. You don't need to charge the enemy. I've already defeated him. What I want you to do is stand so that you give up no new ground in your life and in the life of the community of believers. Stand against him, stand with confidence, stand fully armored, and you will prevail. Now, last week, we talked about the pieces of the armor that you are to put on. We talked about the belt, 
the belt of truth that is the first piece of armor that you put on. And we said that this belt of truth is, yes, the doctrinal truths that God has revealed to us, those statements of authority that he has given us. But it's really more than just statements of doctrine that we can rattle off. It's truth that is being lived out in our life. It is truth that is dictating the things that we do and we say. When it comes to determining this way or that way, we look to truth and allow truth to guide us and to lead us and to organize the things around us. So the first, we put on the belt of truth. And then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we said, yes, those who know Jesus as Savior have been given the righteousness of Jesus at their conversion. When they were justified by faith in Christ alone, they were given the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at a Christian, one who is truly born again, God sees not our sin because it was paid for by the Lamb, by the substitute, by God the Son. He sees in us the righteousness that has been imputed to our account. It's been it's been put on us, not by any works of our life, but by the grace of God, the mercy and loving. He puts righteousness on us when by faith we trust Jesus. But it's not, it's more than just the righteousness that we have. We said the breastplate represents those righteous acts coming out of our life as we allow God, the Holy Spirit, to push the character of Jesus out in us so that when people hear us and see us and are around us, they're hearing and seeing and and thinking more about who Jesus is than who we are. And they're actually looking at us going, I don't remember you being this way. And why are you so different? It gives us the opportunity to say, well, because I've been renewed. I'm, I'm, I've been uh, redeemed. I've been born again by, by, the, uh, by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why I'm different. So as God pushes the righteousness out of us, it is that breastplate that we are wearing, the righteousness of Christ being lived out in us. And then we said the last piece that we put on are the shoes. The shoes, the cleated sandal-like boots that the Roman soldiers would wear to give them stability where they're standing. And it is the, the preparation of the gospel of peace. It is the peace we have with God because of the good news responded to by the believer. We can say, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm in right standing with God or not. I can stand stable in the fact that I have peace with God. I've been reconciled by God to himself and I have peace with him. So we went home last week having applied those pieces of the armor that you put on and leave on. Today we're going to pick up with the last three pieces of armor and these are not things that you put on and leave on. These are the things that you take up as you're going into battle. Now I did play a just a couple of years of football in high school. The reason I only played a couple of, of years in football, football in high school is because I was lazy. I was chubby and lazy, and I didn't want to do what was required. So I have, like, every other month I dream of what it would be like to be able to go back and play football for high school because I regret not playing, okay? And so, but my dreams, just so you'll know, my dreams, when I go back to high school, I'm the size I am today. 
and I, and I have the knowledge that I have today, and I feel pretty confident in who I am today on the field with a bunch of high school players. Now, not that they won't run circles around me, but I think I probably would go at it a little harder than they would. Maybe. I don't know. So I think about it, and I imagine how great I would be, and then I wake up, and I go, oh, shoot, I should have played, but it happens all the time. Now, when I see this helmet, I think about the number of times that the coaches would say, don't forget your helmet. Because notoriously, we would come to practice and someone would be as frantic as I was trying to get my headset on to figure out where their helmet was. Because they didn't want to have to tell the coach that they had lost their helmet. Because you can't go into battle without this thing on. They won't allow you to and you're foolish if you do. But this is not something that you wear all the time. I mean, it is, it is something that you have and you put on when it's, and I'm not going to put it on, you put on when it's your time to go on the field. This is a take up and bring with you. Don't forget this. You're going to need it. When we get to chapter number 6, verse 16 of the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, if you have your Bible, turn with us there. If you have version, you go to the live events, you'll find uh, notes there. If you have our church app, the Oasis Church app, you say, I had no idea you had one of those. Well, we do. You can access it on our websites, on the front page. Click a link, it'll send you a, a message that you can follow those steps through and have the app. It's on the notes as well under the Sunday tab. You can find it there. Ephesians chapter number 6, let's begin at verse 16. Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's as far as we're going to go today. Two verses, three more pieces of armor. Notice that he says, in all circumstances. That is a, a phrase that's been translated in a few different ways. I think probably the best way of translating that statement out of the Greek into English is, uh, as you have taken or put on all of these, also take these. In like manner, as you've put on these pieces of armor, take these up as well. In all circumstances makes sense as well because is there ever going to be a day when you're not in the heat of battle with the enemy? The answer to that is no. Every day you roll out of bed, you meet the enemy and you need to be taking up those things in included with those things you have put on your belt, your breastplate, your shoes, now your shield. You need to take it as well. He says, first, let's take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. A Roman soldier's shield measured about two and a half foot wide and about four foot tall. A soldier could squeeze in and crouch behind the shield and be completely covered. It was made of wood. Most of the time it was two-ply wood 
with a convex shape, meaning that it would turn in toward me almost like a half shell. Not quite that, that, uh, that strong, but, but in that convex way. It was wood that was covered in canvas, a thick, heavy canvas, and then it was covered with a layer of leather, animal skins. Metal was attached along the top edge and along the bottom edge because sometimes it could get turned around and it would hit the ground on both the top or the bottom side depending on how the soldier yanked it up in order to use it. So it would have metal across the top edges edges so that it wouldn't fray as it hit and bumped the ground. And it had an iron half ball, if you will, in the center because that would cause the, the, the knife, the dagger, the sword blades, or the iron. Uh, the arrows that were shot to glance off and be deflected. So that was the Roman shield. And it's, it would, could also be linked together. So if, if me and John and Eugene were standing together and we all had our shield, we would have the ability to link them so that the three of us together could form a solid wall or however many soldiers you had in the front line. They could be linked together. They could be made into a solid wall. The people behind us could lay their spears down in between the, uh, the shield and we could march against another army and there was not a thing they could do to us unless they had a bigger weapon and no one had bigger weapons than the Romans. They could also be taken if they were having arrows shot at them. Those that were in the back could take their shields. They could link them up at top and they could lay them forward so that there would be a solid wall in front and a solid wall on top. And who's going to stop that because you can't even get in it. The Romans were smart. The shield was very, very important. Paul calls this shield in our armor, the spiritual armor that God has provided. Paul calls this shield faith. Faith. What is faith? Well, we know Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What, What does that mean? Well, here's what it means in simple terms. Faith is simply believing what God has said. Faith is just taking God at his word. Let me give you, for instance, from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua had taken over the, the, uh, the leadership of Israel from Moses, and now the people of Israel are about to cross the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land and begin to take the Promised Land. Israel was not an army state. They were a bunch of former slaves. They, they didn't have, you know, they, they weren't trained in military ways, and so now God was going to take them into the Promised Land and over overthrow all of the Canaanites living in the land. And so Joshua goes before the Lord and he's like, what am I going to do? Because the first city we've got to face is Jericho and their walls are too tall to climb over and their walls are too thick to push through because you could ride a chariot along the top of the wall of Jericho. God, what are we going to do? God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the wall one time for seven days. You're going to go around, we're going to march around the wall, and then on the seventh day, we're going to march around the wall seven times, and at the end of that seven times, you're going to shout, and you're going to blow the trumpets. And I'm sure Joshua was going, no, seriously, Lord, what are we going to do about Jericho? 
I mean, come on, what is this? We, we, you, I'm, I'm expecting you to say, you know, go in the woods, you're going to find this massive weapon, and you walk, God said, no, no, you're going to walk around the city, you're going to be so totally quiet, march around the city, and then the last time, you're going to march around the seven times, and then you're going to shout and blow your trumpets. Joshua had to exercise faith in what God said and who God is because that plan, can I say, makes no sense. But see, God wasn't about making sense to Joshua. God was about showing the Israelites just who was going to give them the land, and God was about showing the Canaanites just what God was on the side of the Israelites. And so God was making a statement, but Joshua had to exercise faith. It's just simply believing in what God has said. It's trusting in who God is over anything and everything we might think, over anything we might see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears. It's trusting in and believing who God is and what he has said, regardless of how I feel or what experiences and circumstances I may have in my life. It's trusting what God says no matter what. When believers exercise their shield of faith, when they have it and have picked it up and haven't left it at home or left it in mom's car, haven't lost it at school, when we have our shield of faith, when we believe what God says in the face of Satan's fiery attacks, fiery darts, we're able to deflect them and extinguish them. Extinguish them. How do we do that? Well, I'll tell you. The Romans knew that the enemy would take arrows or projectiles, their javelins, their spears, their arrows, whatever it is they might be hurling at them, they would take and they would dip the tip in pitch, a tar-like substance, and then they would set the end of that projectile on fire so that whatever it landed in would not only wound, but set ablaze around them, or even the person, if it just glanced them, would set them ablaze. Well, the Romans got wise to this, so they would take their shields, and they would douse them in water. And that leather and that canvas would soak up all of that water, making the shield that much heavier, but that much more important, so that when they would put their shields up as the arrows were coming over the ridge, set ablaze to do their damage, not only would the shields deflect arrows, but those that sank into the shields would immediately be extinguished by the water, so that the arrow did not only no harm, but did no residual damage from the flame. When believers exercise faith, we're able to deflect and extinguish the enemy's fiery attacks. Here's some that uh, Swindoll wrote in his commentary, and I, I'm just going to steal his list. They're awesome. What kind of attacks are, are being thrown at us by Satan? It's things like doubt, anger, frustration, pride, despair, fear, guilt, shame, confusion, deception, depression, 
discouragement, hopelessness, greed, lust, presumption, stubbornness, laziness, suspicion, jealousy, hate, wrath, discord, and conflict. When the enemy is slinging those lies at us, when he is slinging those things at us to try to cause those reactions, when we exercise the faith in what God has said and who God is, we can extinguish that. When we find ourselves consumed by any of those fiery attacks, then what is likely happening in our life is we have left our faith at home and we are trying to face our enemy with the rationalization of our own mind, looking at the things we can see, believing those things that we hear, operating within the circumstance and experiences we're facing, and we find ourselves bleeding and burning when we could have been deflecting and giving no ground. The shield of faith. In Romans chapter number 1, verse number 17, in Galatians chapter number 3, verse number 11, and in Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 38, there is a quote of an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter number 2, verse number 4, as God is telling the prophet about how he's going to use enemy armies to bring about judgment on his people. And Habakkuk's going, God, I just don't, I don't understand how that, I don't understand how that you're going to use them in their sin to do harm to your people. And God says, the harm I'm doing to my people is not harm for harm's sake. It's judgment on their sin. And yes, I'm going to use them to do my bidding, but I'm also going to judge them as well. And one of the things that God tells the prophet early on is that when these things don't make sense, my righteous ones must continue to live by faith. Paul says it, the righteous shall live by faith. He says it again in Galatians, the righteous will live by faith. The writer of Hebrews says the righteous will live by faith because I'm telling you, The arrows and the projectiles coming at us are many and dangerous and confusing and bewildering. And if we don't put our shield up, we will be consumed by those things. Is it not true that the world that we live in right now is in a state of, can I say, chaos? Is that fair? We're living in a world of chaos or at least We as Americans haven't been as used to the chaos we're living in because what we're living in right now, the things we're experiencing right now, much of the world is, is where they are looking at us going, well, it's about time you guys started feeling some of the stuff we've been going through, if we're honest. But we today are feeling the chaos. How do we navigate this? Very simply. By faith, settled at peace with God, girded in truth, 
It doesn't matter what the newscaster says. It doesn't matter what the politicians put before us. It doesn't matter what other spiritual leaders are saying when it's not pinging in your spiritual ear. You're going, what's wrong with this? It's because truth has girded you and peace has settled you. And we're going to walk in the life of Jesus regardless of the circumstances with our shields up strong and ready. And you know what we'll do? We'll do what we've been called to do since day one. You know, God never said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to represent Jesus as long as the political and social climate is that in which it's comfortable to do so. Do you realize that the comfort in which we live out our Christianity is an anomaly throughout Christian history? Most Christians, if they've named the name of Jesus, have faced persecution from day one. One, we in America haven't experienced that. We're an anomaly. That's not the way it should be. That's the way it has been. But can I tell you, that ain't the way it's going to keep being. We've turned the curve. We've turned the corner. I was having uh, breakfast with my youngest yesterday. And we were just talking about society. And I looked at him and I said, Cade, I'm not trying to scare you. But the America, the life, the society that I have lived... That's not, I don't believe, going to be the life you're going to live. So much has happened in just the last 12 months and less that I really feel that our teenagers, our middle schoolers, our little people that we're raising right now are going to experience things far more challenging than we ever. They're going to experience the things that preachers have talked about that could happen in America. I think they're going to walk through them. You know how they're going to do it? Not on the philosophies of this world. Not on the politics of this nation, not on the laws and all that kind of stuff that we get all twisted up about. They're going to navigate it in their armor, settled, geared up, shield up, holding ground and saying, come what may, you're not taking my spot. And if you kill me, there's somebody right behind me to take my place. Make sense? But that's challenging. It takes faith. Simply believing day in, day out what God has said, who God is, regardless of how it looks, sounds, feels, or what I've experienced. But not just the shield. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. So I got my, heat, my, my shield. I'm going into battle. I'm already wearing my breastplate. I already got my girdle, my boots. I'm grabbing my shield and I'm grabbing my helmet. What does he call this? The helmet of salvation. The last piece of a Roman soldier's armor was his helmet. He would take this up and put it on. It was made of bronze and it rested on like a little leather skull cap that the soldier would put on first and then the bronze would lay on top. It also had little side pieces that would dangle along the side to protect the face. The helmet would go down and also protect the neck. It was essential to have because when facing hand-to-hand combat, there were enemy soldiers on the other side slinging broadswords, which were very long, and their job was simply to swing at head level. 
That was their job. They're behind a level of soldiers, and they're just swinging back and forth, hoping to gash ahead or to, uh, you know, remove one if they by chance could do so. The helmet was essential. That bronze could take a lick that the skull could not. And Paul says, you put on this helmet, and he calls it salvation. Now, believers experience when by faith, they're present, when they're presented with the gospel that, that they are a sinner and that they are broken in their sin. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, has given God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be born like we are, yet retaining his deity but being fully identified with us as humans and putting on flesh and living that perfect human existence in in complete uh, ability of what God has called his standard of holiness. And Christ fulfilled that completely and then laid down his life as a substitute, as a lamb in your place, in mine, for my sin and for yours and paid the price of sin. Then being buried, God raised him again from the dead to demonstrate that that sacrifice was sufficient and that sin, hell, The grave had no hold on him. And when we presented with that truth, trust completely in Jesus and Jesus alone as the saver of our soul, the forgiver of our sins, the provider of the righteousness that we must have, the Bible says that God in turn justifies us. He declares us righteous on behalf of what Christ has done for us. He doesn't say, you finally measured up. Great job. You've passed all the tests. I'm excited for you. I justify you. No, you're broken. You're dead. You have no ability whatsoever. But when by faith you trust in the work of Christ, God goes justified on the basis of the work of Jesus. That is our salvation. We receive salvation justification. And of course, we know that as we live, that salvation is worked out more and more. Not only have we been saved, we are being saved as the Holy Spirit is pushing the life of Jesus out in what we call sanctification. We begin to come more like Christ than we were ourselves, acting, sounding, thinking, responding like Jesus. But I think what Paul is talking about here is the hope of our eternal salvation, the hope of our glorification, that that most folks that have been around church or are from the South call affectionately heaven. It's that notion of putting on that protection, reminding ourselves and settling ourselves in the fact that not only have we been saved, we're being saved, but we're going to be glorified in that future that we are awaiting. We are in battle just waiting on the king to return so that we can go be with him that uh, that helmet of salvation. It's the confident hope and assurance of our eternal future with Christ. Now there's a word or a phrase that we will use that I don't have time to flesh out completely. But it is the idea of eternal security. Now, I know that there will be some that start going, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Kevin. 
Now, you're starting to talk about the once saved, always saved, and, and you know, that, that you can be saved, and then you can go live like the devil, and you can just be right up in the midst of sin, and God's going to bring you to heaven anyway. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that in the battle, you're robed up, you're armored on, and you're at times faced with those fiery darts that you're reflecting of doubt, and you're wondering, I'm just wondering, is this really worth it? That helmet of salvation reminds us that nothing can pluck us out of the hand of the one who saved us. Now, God will never save you apart from your will. And I'm not here to talk about the idea of what apostasy might or might not be when someone who says they're saved later turns their back on Christ. It's happened more than a dozen times just this year with some big-name Christians have, have deconstructed their faith is what they call I don't believe what I used to believe. I don't think they ever were saved, but that's not my job today. What I'm talking about is that reality that if you are in the family, if you are on his team, in his army, you can put that helmet on with confidence that your eternity is secure and this battle is worth every moment for his name. Does that make sense? I like what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 says. Let's just read the whole thing. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, understand, we've talked about this a lot. Hope never means in the New Testament, boy, I really, I hope that this is going, I'm, 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 boy, I sure do hope so, but I'm not sure. No, hope in the New Testament has to do with confident assurance in something that I haven't yet laid my hands on. It's my hope. It's my absolute confidence. He's born again. He brought us and, and, and caused us to be born again to a living assurance, a living confidence through what? The resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Remember, we've talked about in some sermon series past how that we're laying up treasure in the place that moth can't get and, and thieves can't steal and it's not going to rust and it's, it's perfectly safe in the presence of God. He says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know I'm a child of God. I, I know that I've been saved. I see the work of God in my life, but I'm counting on when Christ returns and takes me out of the presence of sin. Those of you who know Jesus as Savior know how frustrating the wrestle is. I know I'm saved, but I wrestle with who I used to be, and if I don't put on my armor, who I will be again. But boy, am I looking forward to that trumpet, whatever in the world that thing's going to sound like, and I'm going to go be with him, and I'm going to be brought from the presence of sin, and I'm going to be released from even the opportunity. I'm going to be fully and completely as God intended for me to be. He says, in this, or in this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, 
for a little while, we're fighting and we're standing. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpensive expressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith what the salvation of your soul and I put that thing on my head so that nothing jars me from the reality that I'm God's child I'm fighting a battle that is difficult and harmful and hurtful and challenging But in the end, he's already won the victory. And even if it kills me, well, because he's been raised, so shall I be. Strap that chin strap on, get your shield up, and stand against this enemy. Not only a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, but a sword. Now, a Roman soldier could potentially have two different types of swords. The first one I've already alluded to was a heavy, double-edged, broadsword. It, it, it would take a, a strong man to, yield, uh, to wield this kind of, of iron because it was thick and heavy. It was sharp and it was long. It, it was about three to four feet long the broad sword. So you would have to work out in order to handle this heavy piece of iron. But the Roman soldiers would typically, all of them have another type of sword or dagger. This dagger was sheathed in the belt. So this sword of the spirit was held on the belt of truth, if you will. It was also double-edged, but much thinner, but razor sharp, only about two foot long. You would pull that out, and you would use that for close hand-to-hand. When the enemy would get that much closer, you'd block him with your shield, and then you'd jab him with that short sword. I think that this is the one that Paul is referring to. This is the only offensive weapon that Paul has identified in this armor. Everything else is about taking my stand, my brother, my sisters, all lined up, shields up, armored on. But this is an offensive weapon, not to charge with. The Romans would never charge with these. They would charge with spears. They would charge with broad swords. Never. This was hand-to-hand, close at combat. What does he say? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse number 17. This sword is not the Holy Spirit. It would, it would be normal. The sword of the Spirit. Okay, this is the sword that is the Spirit resident within me. This is not the sword that, that is the Spirit in me. Rather, this is the Word of God. Now, 
When you read that, most of the time we hear Word of God, we think about Jesus, who is the Word of God, which is, I think we've talked about this before, it is the Greek word logos. And so Jesus is the very nature of the Word of God. He is the expressed representation of God's Word to those that are hearing and seeing. He is God's Word. Here, it's a different word. It's the word rhema. This is more the word of the expression of God. It's not the content, but rather the expression of God. What is the expression of God that we have? It is simply put, the Scriptures. We have at our disposal the words of God expressed to us on the pages of the Bible. That's why we say is one of our essentials is that the Bible alone, no other books, no other documents, no other scrolls, no other holy writings, the Bible alone is authoritative. And it's authoritative in the 66 books as they were originally written. The scriptures that we have are the representation of those original 66 words of God through poetry and, and narrative and, and prophecy and, 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 and all kinds of, of, of different types of, of, of literature. We have God's expressed word here. Paul says, as your only offensive weapon. Now, in our context, what is the most offensive weapon? Not the offensive. What is the most offensive weapon that we have in our disposal? What is it? It's not this. It's not this. It's not the feet. It's not the elbow. What, that's it, Luann. It's that, the tongue, which ironically is at times the most offensive weapon we have at our disposal. I think what Paul is saying is that when you go and find yourself in close combat that you've got to, you've got to bring something and deflecting and blocking is no longer going to work. You've got to put something in. Here's what you can do. You can pull out the scripture and you can jab with God's word. What God has said. You said, well, how does that work? Well, Jesus shows us. You remember back in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Bible says that the Spirit led him in the wilderness for 40 days, and then he was tempted by Satan. Satan came to him and said, Jesus, you're hungry? Of course he was hungry. He said, well, you have the power. You have the ability. Just turn these stones into bread. You won't be so hungry. What did Jesus do? He says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. And what did the enemy do? Go, oh, that's right. So he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he looked out, and he goes, look, look. You see all these kingdoms in the world? I've been given authority. You know I've been given authority over these. I can give them away. I can do. You, you've, you've allowed me to have like a control over them. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just stop all of this together. I'll give them to you if you'll just, if, if you, oh, I'm, if, if you'll just uh, bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus go? He go, thou shalt not tempt 
the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy. Both from Deuteronomy. And, and, and the second one, that was the last one. The second one, he took him up there and he says, if you'll just jump down off the temple, as it is written, now Jesus, you've been quoting scripture and I'm going to quote scripture too. And he says, as it is written, you know, that the angels will not allow your, stu- your feet to, to, to be uh, messed up. You know, they'll come and they'll, they'll save you. So if you jump off, and let them handle you. That'll be cool. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then what does Matthew and Luke say happened when Jesus defeated the enemy with God's word? That the devil fled from him. Now let's think back. What does James 4, 7 tell us? Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from him. But how do we resist him? Not with this. Not with this, that. That right there is the absolute best offensive weapon we have and the only one that we've been given to use. Now, if we're going to use that, we got to practice with it. Now, one of the, one of the most uh, recent arenas in which sword play is uh, seen in our culture is in the uh, movie series called Star Wars. They're not swords, they're lightsabers, okay? And trust me, they're cool. If you don't know Star Wars, you don't know what you're missing. And I can, you come to my house, I'll show you every one of them and I'll watch them all the way through with you. The kids who love Star Wars, they go to Walmart and they see these plastic lightsabers. You sling them and they'll extend out One of the funniest things to watch is two kids trying to do what they've seen these movie actors doing with their sword. You know, they're used to seeing them, you know, and when you put them into the hands of kids, it's hysterical watching them. And they're just slapping and, you know, gouging, but they think they're doing it, but they're not. You know why? Because they have no idea how to use a sword. They're just, you know, flinging and flailing. How many of us have the sword of the Spirit but have no idea how to use it? Because we never practice with it. We we, we never bring it out of the sheath. It's just, yeah, it's it's on here somewhere on my belt. Somewhere, where's my belt? We don't know what to do with the sword that we've been given that will absolutely cause our enemy to flee. It takes practice. It takes accuracy. And to be accurate about how the word, you don't, just, you don't just flip through and go, okay, devil, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. Boom. The enemy's going to go, what's that mean? Do you even know who he was talking to? Do you even know what he was talking about? And at you he comes. It takes, it takes understanding to have accuracy, to know truth so that I can wield it effectively. We got to read it. But it's not just about reading it. It's about studying it to understand it, asking questions about it. It's about reading and studying, meditating on it, thinking about how it applies to me. It's about memorizing it. You say, 
I have no idea where to even start. Most of you have a Bible at home that has a, pa- a, a, a section in the back that says something about verses for certain circumstances. Man, that'd be a great place to start memorizing. I've got some memory cards that were through uh, David Jeremiah's ministry called Slaying the Giants, and it talks about worry and anger and loneliness and things of that nature. Scripture that you can have in your mind if you put it there when these darts and attacks and, and things of the enemy come at your hand. I've got this little thing right here. It's called the Quick Scripture Reference for Counseling. Man, this has so many issues if you're going to try to help somebody, and it's based on Scripture. This would be a great place to start memorizing and putting in your mind the things that you need so that you're not out on the battlefield without your sword when that's the very thing that will cause the enemy to flee. Deflecting, deflecting, standing, ducking, jiving, jabbing, he'll flee with the word of God. It's not a magic formula. It's not hocus pocus, say these words, and it's some magical thing. No, it's the very word of God understood, believed by faith, and then exercised with accuracy. It's God's word. How ready are you to use it? You know what? Practice starts today. Starts today. Get it in there. Mull it over understand pick up another book to help you understand what it's talking about look back on some of these lessons we've given and notes that we've handed out with 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 uh, calls to action to put to place putting those scriptures in our minds so that we can use it we speak god's word in the name of jesus by the power of the holy spirit and we have confidence that the enemy must flee and we've given up no ground so What does he say? He says, take up your shield, take up your helmet, take up your sword. Now, here's the questions that I have for you, and we'll be done. Question number one, are you currently overwhelmed by the lies of the enemy? What were some of the doubt, anger, frustration? All all of those things that are causing you to be in a state of turmoil and chaos inside. Are you currently overwhelmed by the lies, the worry, the, 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 the attitudes that we have toward others because of the lies that we're believing that the enemy is telling us. Y'all, faith is believing and trusting in who God is and what he says. If you're overwhelmed by what the enemy is lying to you about, so pretty much if you're just overwhelmed, then you've probably bought into some of the lies You might have left your shield at home. We might need to put to practice those things that we know God to be and to have said. And and begin believing those things and acting on those things and deflecting those things that come at us to try to knock us off our stand. Question number two. Do you currently wrestle with doubt and fear about your place in the family of God? Like, do you ever find yourself wondering, oh man, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really lived up to God's standard. I'm wondering if I'm still his child. 
I wonder if I prayed that the right way. I wonder if I said the right, right things. I mean, I know Jesus and crucifixion and resurrection, he did it for me. And I know he's God the Son. Man, I didn't say the right word. Are you wrestling with fear and doubt? Chris, can I tell you something? If you're saved by grace through faith, you're secure in Christ. You don't have to worry about staying his child. I, I was born January 2nd, 1972, to David and Judy Clark. Guess what? It's almost 49 years later, and I'm still their son. Don't fret. Don't worry. What has God said? You're mine. Nothing's going to pluck you out of my hands. <laughs> Last question. Do you know your Bible? Are you ready to use your sword? There's no escaping. We got to read it. No way around it. We got to study it. We've got to meditate on it. We got to memorize it. We got to speak it into the battle. Just in case you were wondering if I really think that we should say God's words out loud, the answer to that is, yes, sir, I do. Yes, ma'am. Listen, there is, no, there is no escaping the powerful word of God. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. We learn some things that will be powerful in building our faith, but standing in stark opposition to the lies of the enemy, I absolutely do think you're going down the road and you begin to think about somebody that you want to hold a grudge to. I absolutely believe that we say out loud, uh-uh, we've been called to love one another. God has loved us. Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. Nah, nah, I can't, I can't hold that grudge. And I'm telling you, he'll leave you alone for a minute, but it's okay. Because when he comes back, guess what you got? I got my sword. And it stays sharp. And it stays ready. Don't be overwhelmed. Faith. Don't fear. Worry. If you know Christ, stand in confidence. Know your sword know how to use it. Be prepared. So, in conclusion, I got my belt of truth on. I'm guiding my life with truth, the truth of God's Word. I got my righteousness of Christ, but it's lived out in me. I've got my uh, shoes of peace. I'm steady. I got my shield on. I got my helmet secured, and I've got my sword ready to go. And you know what we can have confidence in? You will be able to stand today. Because it's an evil one. Let's stand and hold that past till Christ returns. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have armor that is custom designed by you. Fits us perfectly. If we'll just put it on, it is made to be used and protect. If we'll just take it up and apply it where it is needed. God, I pray that you'll encourage us, that you will 
show us areas of our life where we might have left our armor and have exposed ourselves. Give us the courage to confess that. Give us the courage to put it on as best we can, trusting you and what you've said and who you are. Father, I pray for that one who may be here today that's never trusted Jesus as Savior. I pray that they'll recognize that they're a sinner and that in themselves have no hope because they cannot live up to your standard of holiness, perfection. But I pray that today they have heard about your Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who put on flesh so that he might be their substitute, taking punishment for their sin so that they might be forgiven crucified and raised in their place and for their sin. I pray that today they will trust Jesus and Jesus alone, that they will want him as their Savior and Lord, that they'll want to confess him as God. And I pray that they'll turn their hearts toward you today. And if they have questions about that, give them the courage to stick around and ask us to show us, show them more specifically through what your word says. Now, God, we ask that you'll take us into the, uh, into the fray of battle. It's on the other side of that door. I pray that we'll be ready, that you'll begin to equip us to stand even stronger for your glory in the building of your kingdom. We love you. We trust you. We look forward to your return. We're confident in it when Christ returns. For it's in his name we pray. And always, as church said, amen. I-